Hi there, and welcome back to uh, the fourth episode of Ecological. Um, I'm joined again by Chris Rushbrook. Say hello, Chris. Hello. Um, today, we are discussing uh, the topic that's probably still very much within the public eye, and that is COVID-19, and we're looking at how that deals with sustainability. Um, COVID-19 is very much at the forefront of everyone's minds. Uh, I think people are even a little fatigued by the subject, but it's a pivotal moment for individuals, businesses and countries as a whole. Uh, in this episode of Ecological, um, it's probably as much about discussing it as a hot topic, um, but also it is documenting this for whatever happens next. Like it's interesting to get a bit of a snapshot of the zeitgeist that we're currently in so we can look back on it. Um, the crisis has very much thrown a spotlight on many of the flaws that are currently in our way of living. Um, they've allowed us to kind of reprioritize what's mat- what matters most. Um, we appreciate the basics again, and we've essentially redefined what essential means. Um, so together today, me and Chris are going to be exploring what this crisis has revealed about ourselves and the world and how the pandemic has influenced changes and decisions um, that we must make for a more sustainable future. Uh, so with uh, COVID-19 having a lasting impact on the way that we live forever, we're just going to kind of see actually what this is doing to our day to day, how this has affected our respective businesses and, and equally how it's kind of uh, affected the world. So Thanks again for joining, Chris. It's weird because the last time we did this, we were actually sat next to each other, and now we're sat. Well, you're sat in a nebula on <laughs> on on Zoom. on Zoom, yeah. Um, and you're you're in a really freakly blurred out place. Yeah, well, this is me. I, I live in just a really blurry um, blurry house. Yeah, that's how it is. Yeah. How are things with you? How's well, good thing. We're, we're seven weeks into this now. I mean, it's at all. <laughs> Well, okay, this is this is quite crucial, actually. So you're obviously you're with your um, wife and your two kids. So in addition to just, you know, being an individual within this, you're also both a husband and a father dealing with COVID-19. Tell me a little bit about your experiences with it for the last seven weeks. Um, I think it's it's been quite strange because the you obviously have more time in a way, but also no time. So our, our our day-to-day ultimately doesn't change that much we don't because our kids still wake up at six and they still go to bed at seven so the fundamentals of our scheduling don't change and then throw into that um daily walks or bike rides or whatever it is we do in that day and trying to get the kids out of the house so they feel like things aren't completely weird have have they noticed the change like do they ask about what's going on at all well, we've, our, kid, our kids are really little, so they're one, one and two, so they don't really, I think, I mean, Ted, who's the youngest, has zero idea. Um, he, he, I think he misses some of the people that he sees. He knows that he misses those people and they aren't around as much. And then Hattie, who's the, the oldest of the two, um, is a little bit more inquisitive, but still she's doing lots of stuff. So she's not really noticing. She, she knows she hasn't seen some of her family and, and friends for a lot longer than normal but we haven't gone down the route of telling her because we she's just not old enough to understand and it would probably um we would do it we might do it wrong and therefore she might just be scared um so until we have to you know do that if, if and when 
things change and we're going outside and she has to integrate with a society that now wears masks we might have to figure out ways to tell her why that happened why that's happening and, and why that's different um but i think generally it's more of a I think people tend to expect too much of themselves and they get told a lot by lots of different people that they should be learning new skills or finding time to do home exercise or baking or you know, whatever it is they, you know, other people are doing. Everyone's got different situations. So I think we all place too much expectation on ourselves to, to achieve as much as or more than we were doing before. Um, and I think you just have to accept the realities. The re- reality is that your life is very different at the moment and probably will mm. be for for the next six to 12 months um, and just try and manage that as best as best we can. And for, I mean, for you, you, you obviously have a different, a different challenge in that you live on your own. Yeah. Well, you, you have, you have the, the polar opposite issue in that you, you have to try and keep your routines without any boundaries being there to do so. No, no societal boundaries to do it. I, do you know, I think actually that's something that I was, I was going to kind of ask you, like, you know, have you found the, having the kids and keeping that routine probably almost a good way of kind of keeping your sanity because you're right I think um, I'm in the the opposite situation where I live by myself where it's great because you have the total freedom you've got the space to yourself you can kind of do what you want but I think also that leads to a great deal of um or there, there can be a lack of structure to your day like there's not really a compelling reason to get out of bed at seven o'clock like I used to in order to get up and go to work because work is only uh you know a, a short 30 second walk down to my kitchen table to to, to 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 get started and logged on um I think it's funny like you know we, we, we've spoken about this before where it's great that you obviously have your kids around you and there's probably like in the seven days there's probably one day where it's absolutely fantastic and perfect like you know that's your Sundays where you're spending all your time with your kids um for me I think it's you know six days out of seven tend to be really great like I'm working on projects and cracking on with my work and catching up with friends and family but then do you know what there'll just be kind of like one day a week where you just be like it would be nice to have the company of somebody else there even if it was just literally their presence even if they said nothing you just yeah. you would quite like to just have some other being <laughs> around you yeah i think i think it just intensifies the um the reliance your day has on your children's moods and at the age where our kids are you know where they are in their lives i think that the best way to describe them is, is unreasonable like <laughs> you, can't, you can't you literally can't reason if they're in a mood that impacts on your day hugely so we you know, and I think that what the what your normal life entails, whereby I leave the house in the morning and come home in the evening, Monday to Friday, generally, is that I have a, a level of control over that, and I don't. My day doesn't depend on their moods and their whims. Um, and obviously, my wife she she's she works two and a half days, so her again she has two and a half days whereby her day isn't totally dictated by that mood. And I think what this situation does. Um, particularly for my, for my wife, is that her days depend on the kids' moods completely because if they're on one, she, it's a tough day. It's a long yeah. 13 hours whereby actually, other than leaving the house for half an hour, an hour, there's very little opportunity to break that mood up because normally you can leave the house and go to town or go and see grandparents or you know just go out and do something. And that changing scenery and changing personnel 
can actually just kick them out of a, a grumpy mood or completely change the dynamic of a day. Whereas actually, if if Hattie wakes up and she's on one, that's the day gone. <laughs> we, we, you know, she she has the potential to everything's an issue. That you know, just unre- it's unreasonable that you can't because they're that age and you can't negotiate. So, I think that's the biggest change is that the um, and that and that indirectly can bleed through to my day because obviously I'm more present I'm here and I can hear those things happening so I'm more inclined to go and try and help or you know it, it's just a distraction to my day as well as, a, as trying to work it can it can impact on that so I think it's a big change and it, and it it takes some getting used to but it also will probably set the scene for appreciating um in the future when we have that opportunity to take ourselves away from it we'll mm. appreciate that more and understand more what that means but also be able to work from home more easily in the future as well because we've got used to that as a as a process well i think that that, that nicely segues actually to kind of the taking a step out as it were and not just looking beyond us as individuals but also talking a little bit more about business because you know in your position you're you are running a uh a, a design and branding agency and this has obviously just uprooted so much of the plans that you would have had at the beginning of the year this has required a completely new way of working um you know I, I, we, can, we can probably talk a little bit more about the business side of things as well but obviously working around your family that's something that lots of people are dealing with now um how have you found that kind of fitting being a dad into trying to to keep a business going during all of this i think i think there's i'm quite lucky in some way so we uh, we have a room that we've been able to commandeer and turn into an office so some people are working from kitchen tables and you know sofas or wherever and trying to you know i'm able to remove myself from um what's going on downstairs and to, a greater or lesser to, some extent. Extent, <laughs> to some extent to a greater or lesser extent depending on what what's what's actually happening at that time yeah so i'm able i'm able to remove myself a little bit but i think it um it just blurs the lines a lot and it's very um it's very easy to get involved and to to be distracted by what's happening around you and uh, and, and it's and it's very different because it's you want to be involved because it's obviously your kids and actually as much you know you think of distractions as negative but actually they they can be playing in the garden i can hear them laughing and screaming and splashing and you know just having a good time and i'm like oh i quite want a bit of that um but yeah <laughs> you have to be disciplined yeah. to stay in the room and then it's and also you know things can be kicking off and you can hear that it's it's a you know pandemonium downstairs and there's crying and tantrums left right and center and previously you would have been in the office wouldn't you you wouldn't even have known about that stuff i would have been on. i wouldn't have known it was happening until i got home at you know half five six o'clock and was able to get know, the debrief from just, your wife <laughs> yeah yeah get the get the debrief and, and just as soon as i walked through the door understand what kind of day it's been so you could move <laughs> yourself more but you know and, and at the same time you so it's a distraction because you want to be involved and it's a distraction because you you can hear it and it's a distraction because you don't want to be involved so it work it's just it's a very strange very strange dynamic to be to be in the middle of well this, this is something that will have changed the the landscape of business you know businesses that previously said that they couldn't be working from home are now having to find ways to adapt to that and I imagine anybody who listens to this has in probably in some shape or form experienced the zoom conference call um just 
give you give you your take because I've I've heard differing opinions from people on this. You know, pets or people walking, or you know, kids interrupting halfway through calls. What's your? I've I've heard some very judgmental things towards this. What's your kind of your your thinking if you, we were having a conversation or you're having a conversation with a client and their kid wanders into the call? I think I think you could probably split those people right down the middle of those who do and those who don't have kids. Because those who do have kids just know what that is. That's you know, kids have their own little minds and their own little ideas of what they can and can't do and you know depending on you know lots of different circumstances they just do what they want they mm. you know you can't you, they if they walk into the room and they want a certain toy that they can't find they don't care whether you're on a call or not they they're like well i want my toy whereas you know dad normally gives me that and mum's not available or whatever that might be yeah so i i just think that's totally acceptable i like i you know the few there's the calls I've been on I've seen cats I've seen kids I've seen all sorts popping in and out and I just think it's quite nice I think it humanizes people and probably um it stop, stops things being so medical and cleansed of anything personal which tends to be our you know our default you know you can see behind me if I didn't have a nebula on the <laughs> you know what you kind know, of see a little bit of reality and what people, you know, people are people. And then, and in a boardroom, you lose that human personal touch, I think. And actually, some people's kids, you think, well, actually, we're all kind of in similar similar positions. But do you think, so, sorry, just to cut across you there, do you think, therefore, that actually, because we've had to change the way that we work and because we're seeing into people's lives and homes do you think it's changed some the the business dynamics and relationships people have had with either colleagues or or clients for that matter because you're you're having to see into their homes and into their lives and not just see them as the the email signature i suppose as it was yeah possibly but i also think that the the element of human presence and interaction is lost within that so you might gain gain one side of the humanity but you lose probably the more important one of the being in their presence and gain insight but lose intimacy yeah i think so um in in the right way the you just there's a lot you can read and see and feel from people's just reactions and body language and how they talk and intonations that you don't kind of pick up on like i i i realize now that i do a lot of expression and movements with my hands that actually on a call aren't seen so they're, they're, they're both pointless and unseen <laughs> they, may be pointless, they may be pointless anyway but they're certainly unseen on a call or i end up you know lifting my hands above my face because i'm like oh i can't see that i'm gonna have to put it there so i don't i think it does give you it gives you an insight but it doesn't necessarily improve that relationship more so than seeing that person in in real life would do i think that's fair and Again, this is this is a very unique situation. Um, you know, between my group of friends, like we've kind of talked about the the difficulty of trying to work from home and the expectations that are associated with that. And I think it was a tweet that somebody shared with me, and it was just like, you need to stop think of this thinking of this as working from home. This is you trying to work in a crisis. This has been a very pressurized time for 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 anyone. Um, and just to kind of just take a bit of a step back, you know, you're a business owner. So 
I think everybody has in, in some way, you know, they had their job impacted, whether that is they're an essential worker and they're one of the few people that are, that are going out to, to work every single day, whether they've, uh, they're trying to run a business and they're trying to uh, look for uh, grants or ways of keeping going or whether they're furloughing people or whether you're one of the lucky few that or lucky few that keeps a job slash are you one of the people that gets furloughed I suppose what I want to just kind of ask you about is you know this is the unprecedented time that they've talked about how do you feel um, you know the government has actually helped with reducing some of the stress and strain on you? Like, have you seen a bad situation made worse or have you seen a bad situation made just a little bit better because of the interventions that are on offer to a, a business owner like yourself? I think I, I think it's hard to say until probably further down the line definitively. Um, from a, and I can't comment on everyone's business. From a personal point of view, the, the interventions I believe have helped um, it, it t- it's taken a lot of um, financial pressure off the business in the short term to be able to um, use things like furloughing workers um, to access the grants and the loans. It gives you a, an opportunity to keep going a bit longer because I think that you know everything everything from a business point of view has kind of stopped or, or at least severely decreased in pace. Um, all of the opportunities we were in the middle of have stopped, not necessarily cancelled, but stopped. And mm. you know, some of the some of the some of the things that have progressed, the timelines have all pushed on. So we're talking most projects now are start. They they're aiming to start in three four months time. But, you know, they, they were it was the first of May, and now that well, we're kind of thinking unless something changes significantly, everything's going to move on three or four months. So we're looking at. August September starts and that creates a, a big hole in your business from a from a cash point of view, a sustainability of cash flow point of view that is really hard to fill without any support. So being able to reduce your um, your outgoings or, or supplement your outgoings with government support um, is great, and being able to potentially access cash is also great. And with you know the the bounce back loans have made the loan situation a lot more appealing specific probably more so for small medium businesses than large businesses because i suppose 50 grand to a large business won't won't pay for a day never mind um longer i think some of the you know furlough is an imperfect science because actually there are businesses whereby if you work in a restaurant you can't physically go to your place of work so actually Mm -hmm. being furloughed does mean you can't add any value for, for both the business and for the government and the money they're paying. But if you think about, you know, we're in the service industry, if you think about charities, you know, if a charity in particular um, might furlough 50% of its workforce, but then that person can't help that charity anymore. So actually the charities that are then losing a lot of money and there's been huge drops in donations then they lose a lot of their staff so they can't implement a lot of their services or they have to offer reduced services plus the fact they then have to distance themselves those furloughed workers can't then volunteer you know for that charity in mm-hmm. the service industry you know just because there isn't paid work doesn't mean there's work that can't be done both either for you know improving the business to give them give us give you a better chance when things happen or, or offering your services free of charge and giving you know trying to help in, in your own way so it's been 
I think it's not a perfect science. I, I think it's an an option that they've used and they've used it well, and it's possibly the best best solution they could come up with in the, in the uh, in the circumstances. But I also think that it furlough isn't quite made for this uh, this reason. It's just a, it was it was adapted. They were like, well, that's a good option for this, but it doesn't necessarily give businesses or the government the best value for that money that they're paying. Which they essentially are doing. No, that's that's a really good point. That there is a lot of stuff that could be done. I mean, any given situation. I mean, you you've kind of touched upon as well the, I, I suppose more sort of like the long term ramifications here. Um, you know, there is going to be a a knock-on impact of the slowdown that we've had onto how businesses can actually start to, to gear up. I mean, just looking a little further ahead, and I know that no one's got a crystal ball with this, but what are you anticipating as a as a business owner and somebody that's known working within businesses and industries for for your you know your whole working life? What would you anticipate the return to? The new normal, which I absolutely love. I, the term. I have no one's playing coronavirus bingo. <laughs> yeah. Ticking all the boxes, ticking every box. Yes. Um, um. I think I think ways of working will change drastically. Um, people, you know, there are, there are businesses who've resisted home working or flexible working. I think is now the official term for that. Um, who've been forced into embracing it and those who have said it's not possible have been proven that it's you know when it's when the alternative is them not making any money as a business they've been like oh actually we can make this work so I think ways of working will change um I think there'll be huge uh, operational issues with transport and people getting to and from work for for the foreseeable future until there's a vaccine and or a, or a defense for yes for the for the illness um i think i think one of the biggest things will probably be businesses looking at their resilience to something like this because this is you can't you couldn't have planned for this you can't really plan for this kind of event because you you don't know it's coming um don't necessarily know that it's coming um and and i think businesses will perhaps hoard more money or hold more reserves um perhaps run a little bit more conservatively and and um, try and manage their own business so that you know in the immediate you know if there's a second wave for argument's sake if there is a second peak um, and this all happens again in six months you know businesses will probably have be bearing that in mind right now and thinking how do we if this happens if there's another four weeks of lockdown further down the line how you know we've got we'll have the plans in place so that we can switch on a plan of action rather than reacting to it we'll have planned for it that is interesting. I mean, I think you're right. I think it's going to change the way the businesses try to build their resilience. Do you foresee some industries just not surviving this because actually it's going to change the consumer behaviour so dramatically? Like, I mean, I, I can't honestly predict how the service, well, not the service economy, more sort of like the entertainment sector, I'm thinking cinemas, restaurants, cafes, for them to introduce and probably implement the social distancing required for a lot of them it kind of means that their business can't even function close to what it yeah. used to if you if you're if, if you take cinemas you're probably for every seat you would be allowed to fill you'd have to keep four to eight empty to give a yeah. 
a two meter distance or even a smaller distance than that between people. Um, if you, you know, you, you'd hope you're, you're probably praying for families of 10 as a cinema owner to come and fill a row and then just keep a row empty either side. But they, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's impossible to foresee what will happen, but to, for a chart, for um, a cinema, that would opening would then cost them money. They would lose money by opening because they wouldn't be able to have the capacity in the cinema or in the screen to then warrant opening. So they would then remain closed. That makes more sense. But if if and when furloughing employees ends, not even considering their ongoing operational costs and whatever mm. licensing fees they pay to people and all those kind of different things, you could, they can't open until they may not be able to open until. The, the, the complete you know vaccine is done everyone who's vulnerable is vaccinated and then we just go to a more traditional way of you know we vaccinate those who are vulnerable everyone else kind of goes around and, and they con- contract the disease and ride it out in in, a, in the way that we do with flu and you know other with everything else vaccin- essentially yeah yeah vaccinated diseases that we we fight against and if you get it you assume that the vast majority, overwhelming majority of people can fight it because they don't have, they're not vulnerable. Um, well, you, you talk about cinemas there. Sorry, yeah. I just want to move on to, to talk as well about um, the airline industry because I think that's probably the one that's grabbing the most headlines right now. It is in some ways both um, one of the biggest casualties, but probably also one of the greatest causes of the pandemic. The way in which this was able to spread globally is down to the availability and accessibility of air travel. Now, of course, people are already jumping to say that we should have been screening people coming into the country. And yet all the other scientific evidence that explains how people were asymptomatic shows you that actually you were going to let people into the country carrying the virus, whether you liked it or not, whether you think you could you could reduce the impact. But with the changes that we're seeing now from COVID-19, the airline industry is a bit of a, an odd one because they're saying that to enforce social distancing, you're looking at, at flights flying 20% full for one. And they said that wouldn't one flight have a one kilometre queue? They, yeah. I think I read somewhere that actually one of the one of the key issues is the space and capacity of airports, terminals rather than the planes. It's the, you know, one flight is a kilometre queue and you've got 20 flights leaving in any hour or two hours. Then you're talking 20 kilometres of queues within an airport that's got a footprint of 10 acres or whatever it might be. The logistics of that just aren't plausible. Well, from a if we if we, if we you know yank this conversation towards more of a sustainability perspective, yeah, air travel has been seen as as one of the uh, you know one of the, the the horsemen of the apocalypse, as it were, for bringing about climate change with the amount of pollution that it does spew out and our increased use of air travel in particular. You know, is this actually something? Po- I mean, I, I I don't want to um, ignore as well the short-term devastation that the loss of jobs is going to cause. Like you're talking tens of thousands of people hundreds of thousands of people in the UK who rely on the airline industry in some shape or form, whether that's working in the airport or just, you know, cleaning the airport or, or driving people, or taxi drivers taking people to the airport. But And and probably then on top of that, the industries that rely on tourism and those people coming into the country to then buy our stuff. And, and then you, you multiply that by the world 
and all the different economies and, and tourist industries who, who are even more reliant on tourism than we are. So it's a, it is a huge, it, it's a huge um, issue, but it's also it's a huge issue for stock, isn't it, from a sustainability point of view and an economical point of view and lots of different points of view. Uh, but as I say, you know, it, it seems like we could be celebrating the, this from a sustainability point of view. But I also feel like the airline industry could very easily be scapegoated for a lot of other pretty bad practices within industry. Like I think when you look specifically at like um, agriculture, agriculture has kind of been uh, exposed, I think, during this crisis. You know, Belgium grabbing the headlines of the fact that they the government was asking people asking people to have uh, two portions of chips a week because of the quantity of food waste that was building up from the potato harvests mm-hmm. as an example like you know we are so used to getting any kind of fruit and veg that we want then and and now um and that relies on global supply chains in order to deliver that. And are we going to see a change to that as well? Like, are we going to start seeing um, countries invest more in their own domestic agricultural infrastructures to to feed their nations rather than go for this global supply chain where actually the, the, the problem has not been getting enough food into the supermarkets. There's been plenty. It's actually, it's the logistics of getting it there and how global supply chains have been interrupted by by something like this. Mm-hmm. Um, just positing that thought out there, what other industries do you think are going to be impacted long term because of what we've seen in the last seven weeks? I think, well, I think that in more close, moving more close to home, I think the high street will be, I mean, it's already on its knees anyway um you take away all the people on the high street and the ability to open for well, currently what seven or eight weeks um and that's not officially been lifted yet um i think there are more and more you know mcdonald's is opening kfc is opening greg's is opening great news for everyone b&q is open home base is open so you know as of i think it's today or yesterday sixth of may um b&q opened all of their stores now um, so the, the high street is starting to reopen, and I think one of the first things that is likely to change is that not more non-essential outlets will be able to open. Um, so the, it'll be interesting to see how many of those stores reopen. There's been a few have announced that they're already gone. Cath um, Kidston's probably the one of the one of the bigger warehouse. I think they've gone as well. So there's a few high street retailers already gone. Mm. Um, so it'll be interesting to to see how how they pan out. And I think charity. Um, charities may struggle or, or have said they are struggling it's a, it's a very strange time for charities because they're probably needed the most but are being supported the least that they've known other than you know the, the work that people have done for the NHS and the you know the charities within the NHS is absolutely incredible mm. but I, I suppose with everything that coronavirus has done it's at the expense of other things the coronavirus, you know, much the way that Brexit did last year, has, has hogged all the all the limelight and all the action in terms of what people are trying to fight. We've we've become quite tunnel visioned on it, and actually, you know, some of the stuff that Chris Whitty has been saying about the the hidden pandemic of the issues that are being ignored in in inverted well, cancer treatments or mental or, health or, issues. Yeah, yeah, there there are, there are you know the, this 
we're obviously fighting the fight against the um, the current enemy, but then there are, there are lots of issues backing up that need to be addressed, and I think that's being shown in charity, the charity industry as well, because as, as well as on top of the issues with furloughing staff and, that, and what that brings, um, the donations have gone down because obviously everyone is feeling the pinch. You know, yeah. you don't know everyone's uncertain, so your natural instinct is to draw up the purse strings nice and tight and just hunker down and try and get through it all. So I think the charity the charity sector rather than industry would, is probably going to be an interesting, um, it'll be interesting to see where they go as well and whether donations continue, whether this feel-good vibe at the moment in terms of community can continue beyond and actually expand and, and live beyond the, the crisis or whether it'll be a, a bit of a reversion back to insulation and every man for the self which has kind of become the, the slightly sad norm that people mostly are doing well i think done. i think when we saw the very beginning of this crisis unfold there was very much i think a, a, a quite uncomfortable unveiling actually of this every man for themselves kind of you know the the panic buying that we saw is it's you know despite the attempts from retailers to assure people that there was plenty of supplies and actually what you need to do is buy what you need not more than you need because otherwise you interrupt all of the models that they work towards to, to perfect it was when people were obviously taking vast quantities out of supermarkets just for themselves that i, I to me that 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 certainly uh, that got to me that saddened me to think mm. that that that's people's it's understandable I think it's important to say it's understandable why people would think to put themselves and their families first in those situations. But you would like to think that in times of crisis, actually, and and I think, you know what, I think that has slowly but surely started to trickle through. I think there are people just starting to reconnect with their communities in some way. I mean, you know, you take it, you know, let's not all be doom and gloom. Look at the response to the NHS volunteer scheme. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. You know, that is something that I think we can be incredibly proud of as a as a country is that let's take away the political affiliations to begin with about the state of the NHS, because otherwise I'll be here forever. But at a point when help was needed, people recognised that they could do something and were willing to more gladly than ever, not just applaud for the NHS, but actually step up and do something to help other people out within the community. Yeah. You know, the, the the stories that you see, you know, um, Captain Tom Major, for example. Um, Tom Moore. Tom Moore, sorry, thank you. Captain you Tom didn't get Moore. your position mixed up. <laughs> He should be. A, he should have been a major. Should have been a major, Tom. Exactly. Yeah. The opportunity missed. Um, and we could have had a great theme tune from the Beatles as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's uh, you know th- he is one example of uh, of thousands of other people that have stepped up the, to the plate to try and help their communities through this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for me, this has very much redefined what essential is. You're saying here that. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with the high street when it opens up again. Now, you you know, I, I say living by myself, I'm the one that goes and queues up at the supermarket. And I'm imagining the weekly shop, you're the one who's going and queuing up and, and standing in line to go and do the weekly shop. Yeah, we've, we've, bo- we've both done it. Yeah, we have both done it. Um, and we've, we tried to do online, but it's just a waste of time. But this is it. That's, that's your essential purchases. 
are people genuinely going to, other than Boxing Day sales at Next, queue up outside the retailers in order to get stuff? No, I think people are going to move probably a lot more online anyway. And actually, if there's fewer places to go out, I would expect to see fashion retail in particular start to decline because fast fashion just doesn't have its same appeal anymore. You're just not using it as much as you used to. And so maybe we could see with this redefinition of what essential means, more companies looking to be more resilient in the future and actually moving towards markets where there's a much greater need, like sustainable energy, for example, is a, is, is much more, is, is needed. Healthcare is much more needed. Uh, social care is something that's definitely needed. Um, so hopefully, you know, maybe with a, a pay increase to some of those essential workers wouldn't really go amiss as well. You actually might start to see a redistribution across the economy. Mm, it'd be, well, it'd be nice to know. It would be nice for that to happen, wouldn't it? But the, I think the, <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm as, as confident as you are because we still have a certain government in power. Um, and although I think they've done a lot of good stuff within this crisis, there's also obviously a lot of stuff that hasn't quite gone right. And yeah. I think, the, you know, you're, you're right. The What does essential mean? And I think it's, you know, food, water, health, and, and then community, which probably includes your family, your friends, and, you you know, your general support network, as well as your, your locality. And I suppose to a greater or lesser extent, people have bigger or smaller communities. But I think we all feel the pinch of not being able to see those that we normally see and want to spend time with. Um, yeah. And everyone's actually, I think I've probably spoken more, you know, my, my own direct family, I've probably spoken more to them in the last seven weeks than I normally would do just because, yeah. I, you know, not being able to have something makes you want it more and, you know, not being able to go and see your mum and dad and, um, you know, in my case, my sisters and, and their families. And I've, you know, I've had a, a new nephew who I haven't seen yet. Um, it's those kind of things that you kind of switch into and you think, yeah, that's, it, it, it redefines what's important to us as people and probably just does, you know, remove that element of possessions and consuming just a little bit lower down. But it'll be, it'll, it remains to be seen whether that, you know, in two years time when we've got a vaccine and, you know, coronavirus is, is, is you know, becomes just one of those illnesses that some people get. And, you know, we have, in the same way we have a flu, you know, flu every year, will the will coronavirus just be one of those diseases that recurs each year and we, we sadly lose people to it, but we're able to control it? Because I think the, the issues have been the lack of defence and the, the worry about NHS capacity rather than necessarily about the disease itself, because I think it's very familiar to, you know, it, it works very similarly to lots of illnesses. We just don't have any way of fighting it. Yeah. So and see whether we can continue this community vibe and these, these positive things that have come amidst a crisis um, or whether we'll revert. Well, so, I and I think just you touching upon like the healthcare side of things, it's the ability to fight it and to contain it. And actually what, what, what has played out on a global level is the rate at which countries started to take this serious, I tell you, say take this seriously, or at least started to act, timing was a really big factor. And actually being at the back of the queue to get access to things like tests and PPE has started to make a real difference. I see this now, you know, this has been a global pandemic. Take away pandemic because you're focusing on disease and talk just about a crisis where it threatens a population. 
Now, I can see that this is actually foreshadowing probably some of the climate change disasters that we're going to see coming. The moment that... Well, I think we've already started know, seeing them. Well, well, there is, of course, to say that this is connected with them as well, but when it starts affecting the entire uh, globe... I wasn't, I wasn't suggesting that. I was actually just thinking about we're starting to see the extremes, you know, the, the potential extremes are, are arriving, the fires in Australia, the, even the floods in the UK from a... You know, we thought that was crippling to the economy. Yes. Uh, people worried about the six or seven days of, you know, all the, you know, February was just month, week after week of flooding and, and storms and, and travel disruption. And we all thought that was bad. Um, it's kind of, I think it's a, a bit of a shot across the bow, isn't it, from a, a global point of view of, you know, what does a crisis look like? And are we um, careering blindly towards another one um, and, and not taking it? as seriously as we perhaps should and it, you know in November COVID-19 was a well COVID-19 didn't exist it was a you know a coronavirus was something in China that yeah. seemed to be spreading a little bit and uh, Wuhan a place that no one had really ever heard of yeah you know just sounded like a celebration celebratory word Wuhan um, <laughs> you know, and, and it, it was it was like you know, it was it was called a flu-like illness. That's what people called it, and it was in China. And you know, by March, forty percent of the world was on lockdown, trying yeah. to reduce the impact of it. And I think that you know we we've got longer with climate change. It's it's been slowly creeping up on us for years and decades, probably. And those who were early adopters and early activists will be screaming at people saying we've been shouting about this for a long time. Um, and I think that. What what's, what it has shown, I think, is that the government is able to inject impetus into something, and it can be ag- quite agile. You know, it's still you know, we're not we're not talking fleet of foot, but we're talking quick response. Yeah, a lot of the re- you know, yes, people will you know people would say we didn't react quickly enough, but when things have when when this was started to be um, impacting on our lives, things happened quickly. Decisions were made, plans were put in place. Yes, you can argue some of it wasn't quickly enough, but actually a lot of the things that they've turned around in a case of days and weeks and you know now probably into months, those things, if it was just normal projects, would have taken years yeah. for some of the, you know, the, the to get the laws in place, to get the structures in place, to create websites that could handle the capacity of four or five hundred thousand people a day or an hour or whatever it was they were testing for the you know, the furloughing websites, Yeah, quite a lot of what's been done has been done quickly and fairly well. I think it just it does show that actually if we collectively take this drive and, and impetus and move it once we've you know got through this crisis stage into climate change or sustainability in general, or recycle, whatever it is we choose to take it into, if we can take that impetus and that drive and focus and money and distribute it into the right kind of places it'll be interesting to see where where it can go i think it's an opportunity now to say right we're not too late with climate change some people arguing we are we can still change it we've shown the ozone layer is closed in three months or whatever it is it's, it's yeah, the hole in the ozone layer is reduced significantly so we sh- we can see that a change in behavior can create a change in the outcome of climate change I suppose we're not saying that it should be as an abrupt about turn as what we've had to go through for this, but certainly a five-year target, some serious headway could be made if there was an international consensus. Yeah, and I think that's part of the, you know, I think 
we the international world has fought this fairly individually. Um, everyone's made their own decisions at their own times um, and gone about things in their own way. And that's probably not the way to solve climate change. It needs to be a more coordinated effort, which brings in additional complexity. But, you know, even, even if we focus on ourselves, if our government chooses to focus on us as a country to make our impact, which I think is all we can do, as a you know if you're talking five-year plans what can we do as a country to take this challenge on and show other people how they can do it um, and I think that's one thing that the the different responses to coronavirus has shown is that you can learn from other people's mistakes and successes and implement those within your country um, you know like the the track and trace app that they're developing now mm. that's worked so well in other countries um, to suppress it in the first place that's the that's why we're using that that's why i think why we're using that as our way of controlling it or trying to figure out a way to end bring bring about more normality to life mm. um, so yeah i think it's interesting to see where we can go and there's the cynic in me that looks at the track and trace app as <laughs> leave mark two in terms of data collection but <laughs> cynic i know i think it's a necessary i think it's a necessary evil and i think um we, we kind of have to think about the immediacy of the problem and if the choice is between being able to leave our houses and try and resume some normality to our life and giving some information to an app that the government controls i'd take sharing our information but i'm, a, I'm kind of one of those people who i don't really do much wrong that i would really care if anyone sees so i also i then don't really care <laughs> Someone see, knows where I am. It doesn't really bother me. I say I see is the opportunity there where we know that so much is going to change and there is no such thing as returning to normality. I'm just interested in making sure we return to a better version rather than a worse version of what we had before. Um, yeah. And giving up data privacy sometimes or any form of privacy and infringing on privacy can be uh, a slippery slope. But I feel like that's another debate <laughs> to have. Yeah. Um, just um, to kind of like wrap this up, you know, I, we've, we've kind of gone through, as I say, like the individual, the business and kind of a, a, a much bigger, you know, focus on what COVID-19 has done to the globe. Um, and I wanted to kind of just, you know, we've had a chance to kind of reflect and see stuff that's kind of past our eyes. 24 hour news is pretty much what everyone has been plugged into. Um, and I just wondered, you know, from everything you've seen in the past few weeks, I asked you if you, there was a positive news story that you wanted to share um, that's COVID-19 related. I just thought it'd be good to end on a positive note for something that's happened. Yeah, I think, well, I think that I'll, I'll do one that focuses just on COVID-19 and, and then one that's a bit more sustainability focused. That's not what I, I asked you to do. <laughs> I know, but I'm, I'm, I'm a maverick. I think that the, so I think from COVID-19 point of view, I think the rediscovering of community is at least on the face of it is a really nice thing that's happened and i think you can see that in lots of ways from rainbows to support for captains on more to lot you know there's hundreds of different stories i think one that really stood out for me was um a 95 year old and a five-year-old becoming pen pals um i think it's in wolverhampton uh, where kieran who's five who lives at number nine yeah. uh, wrote a letter to ron who's 95 um from number 24 just to ask him if he was okay and sent him a little picture of a rainbow to put in his window uh which ron then sent back a, a response obviously put his rainbow up and then uh, i think it was ron's daughter who shared it on twitter and it went went viral 
yeah just a little you know tiny things of generational you know i think that's some people feel that that's been lost a lot of the way and there's actually a lot of uh, friction between generations and you know boomers and millennials and gen x's and you know snowflakes and all that kind of stuff we have a tendency to point fingers and and blame people so actually it's quite nice to see that um, yeah you're very right so returning and then the other one i think you know more slightly more sustainable focus is probably the rise and need which i spelled with a k of self-sustainability um and that's you know there's no flour in the shops because people are baking. <laughs> there's so the, there that. it is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's no comp there's no compost uh, because people are getting outdoors and having a bash at their, you know, and whether that's make doing their own veg. Um, there's no schools, people having to teach their own kids and on, you know, props appreciate teachers a little bit more on the job that they do. There's no officers, so we're all having to find ways to work from home and you know, no gym, so we're all having to find ways of working out or keeping fit or actually discovering keeping fit and trying to rediscover that as part of this process and i think there's the top the top 20 increases in searches on google eight of them revolve around baking plain flour recipes growing plants local farm deliveries you know and, and actually becoming more sustainable as individuals and making going back to a time where we perhaps met grew and made our own food and produce um, and I think that can only be a good thing, as well as, you know, this is our, our own personal health and sustainability and welfare of getting out and walking and cycling, all that kind of stuff. Do uh, you know what? I'm glad that I gave you two because they are two fantastic stories. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> um, what about my, you? you come up with? My story, um, I, I actually did a, it's a little bit of a cheeky thing. I did a, a quiz. Everyone's been doing Zoom quizzes um to with their families and, and their friends and I did a a round that was all focused on good stories from COVID-19 so actually I stumbled across this one a few weeks ago yeah um <laughs> I gave myself homework that I'd already done I was thinking ahead smart. um yeah it was smart it's, it's sustainable yeah um and I had the top 10 news stories from that I think my favorite one I think because it was actually quite um I think what it represents, it's the imagery of it's incredibly powerful. And that was for the first time in 30 years, the people in the the, the Punjab region in northern Italy, um, Italy, northern India. God, I'm like an absolute <laughs> idiot now, don't I? Start that again. Do you want to start that one again? Yeah, I'm going to start that one again. <laughs> so the news story that I've chosen um, is kind of like representative. I think it actually shows like... Uh, it has actually an image of what's changed during COVID-19. And for me, that was the the fact that in the region of Punjab in northern India, um, they can see the Himalayan mountain range for the first time in 30 years. And that's as a consequence of the lockdown. That is because of the, the, the drop in pollution. And I know that's something that in itself is not sustainable. You cannot put life on hold. But for me, you know the the majesty and the size and you know the phenomena that is the the Himalayan mountain range you know people who climb Everest and and want to be on top of the world like you know this is actually for me something that's that's so um, representative of the achievements of man it's just the idea that you'd cloud that beauty um, and you've allowed that to kind of be hidden behind all the other non-essential activities and this has actually given people pause for thought 
to kind of consider actually what is important in this world. And a lot of people, as you say, are getting better connected with their health and nature and their environment and their families and their communities. And I just thought that something as significant as that, you know, 30 years goes beyond my my lifetime to think that that hasn't been a thing. Show off. Um, but it, it but it does go back to what we were saying earlier in terms of what is actually possible. Um, yeah. We're not setting ourselves in feasible tasks and it's taken something as extreme as this, not just to 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 get us to stop, but also for some of the, the damage that we've caused to to heal itself. Yeah. So and to be able to and to be able to see it because you like you say, if you if you're less than 30, maybe less than 40 years old, you won't remember seeing the Himalayan mountains from there yeah so then to see it it's a bit like the videos where you see people who have who are colorblind getting glasses that mean they can see color for the first time or a deaf person hearing for the first time it must be like a wow i never i didn't know that i was i didn't even know that was there that's what i mean they didn't even know it existed because of you because they don't remember it so i think i think it perhaps gives you an idea of um a what we can achieve and b perhaps what we've also caused and what we've done as a you know not intentionally but yeah, it just gives you pause for thought to think, actually, we have done things that we perhaps would like to change and actually it's not beyond our capability to, to change and to revert back to what, you know, some of what we had. But it's, you know, it, it's all very, everyone's very um, hyped up and thinking about it right now. Um, so I think the, the challenge for people who are, who are looking to drive this agenda is to keep it at the front of mind, but in the right way as well. So making sure it's a, a positive message and making sure that people you know we give people ideas of how to do it rather than telling them what to do yes well i think in order to get people to to live more sustainably you need to show them how your lifestyle previous to that was was not sustainable and the damage that it was causing so i think you're right this is the opportunity to seize the agenda and say the evidence is right in front of you here and here is an opportunity to do something different um which I think is a nice place for us to leave today's episode on, wouldn't you say? I think so. Let's all just do something good. Yeah, well, uh, it's really difficult to know because what's going to happen next? Because the next episode of Ecological, I'd love to be back to the old ways of interviewing some esteemed guests in a in a room full of engaged Eco warriors. <laughs> I don't think that's. I don't think that's going to happen. What What I think we what we would definitely like to do is have um, a guest, even if it's more in this kind of a format where we we chat with them um, over over conference call, or if you know by then you know in the next four or five weeks we we may see some lifting of lockdown measures, which means we may be able to chat to them from a safe distance across a large room with lots of with you know, sneeze guards and all sorts in between us and heavy duty masks on and a microphone in the middle of the room. So join us for the next episode of Ecological, which is three people shouting in a room. <laughs> that's the, that's the um, that's probably our new mantra, our new episode. That's the, the name of that episode will be three Shout. people shouting in a room. Oh, well, it helps us out for this one. Um, look, I just want to thank anybody that's listened to this today. And I hope that, you know, it's at least given you a, a chance to reflect on the situation you find yourselves in. Um, and also a little bit of hope and inspiration about the the possible change that we could start bringing about. I do want to just p- 
pull out a bit of a call to arms here and say any other good news stories that you think has come about because of COVID-19 that would lead to a more sustainable future, please send them in. Um, we are on the Facebook group Ecological. We can be reached via Northern Bear, both on our Instagram, um, our Facebook and uh, through email. That's either chris at thenorthernbear.co.uk or if you just go to our website, there's a little form to get in touch with us there. Um, I suppose all that's left to do is to say thank you very much for listening and it's goodbye from Michael. Goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. You know that people are calling it the Rona? The Rona? Yeah, I'm going to drop that in. <laughs> okay. Um, maybe we should just call it the Rona. The, the Rona. I'm going to just call it... What about my the Rona? My... My the Rona. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>